Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel Podcast. I am your host, John Benzik, the founder of VentureSuperfly.com, the website that helps you double Double. your entrepreneurial courage, even if you're in a sea of self-doubt. I'm really excited about my guest today because I, as just a regular Joe consumer, have been watching and inspired by this guy's company for many years now. I'll be interviewing Brent Gale. Brent is the co-owner and designer at Twin6. Twin6 designs and manufactures bicycle apparel, as well as bicycles and bike accessories. They originally started with apparel, and if you can recall, over a decade ago, the bicycle apparel options turned performance riders into sort of unwilling billboards and cartoon characterizations. You know, those tight-fitting, bright logo-driven brands you always see on the bikers? Well, in 2005, Brent and his partner, Ryan Carlson, as graphic designers and fed up with the uninspired choices for technical gear, set out to change the ever-predictable face of cycling apparel, which thankfully sparked a revolution that continues with Twin Six's leadership to this day. They sell through leading bicycle retailers across the U.S. and on their website. So listeners with our guest Brent here today, we're in for a fantastic episode with some interesting and helpful stories about Twin Six and Brent's entrepreneurial journey. To learn more about Brent's company, please check out Twin6.com. Whether you're a biker or not, you'll really love it. They have some very, very smart designs on the website. It's really cool. Brent, thanks for being here and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. Thanks for having me, John. Absolutely. Thank you. So Brent, within this podcast, there are three segments. The first is called Give Me the Basics, which helps set the context about your company for our listeners. And the second part is what I call Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to help move them forward. And the final part is the Let's Get Personal component, where we get into some of the more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. Brent, it's time for some questions. Should we give it a shot? I'm ready. Give me the basics. Brent, how did you come up with the Twin Six name? Naming a company is probably one of the hardest things to do. Um, it was, I mean, it was really hard for us. I mean, maybe it's easy for some people, but for us, it was, it was, it was challenging. Ryan and I, we probably came up with three or four hundred names, you know, trying to trying to come up with something that was interesting and cool to us. It sounded different. One of the things that we were excited about about our name was is that it had a uh, a number in it which allowed us to use that number as our logo. 
as opposed to having to use our logo. So basically, I think one of the one of the cool things about it was is that you know if you were kind of into our brand, you would know if somebody else was into our brand just by seeing them walking around wearing a number six on their cycling kit or their cycling t-shirt or whatever. And so anyway, you know, Twin Six was was the name we ended up landing on. And you know, the other part of coming up with a name is hoping that the URL is available and you I don't think you're ever really comfortable with your, your name either. The the brand name that you come up with right away, it always sort of is feel kind of weird saying it at first, but it's a it's been a good name for us and the number 6 has kind of become my lucky number. Oh, is that right? Yeah. You know, the other thing too, I agree with you about when you choose a name, especially if you're a creative type. Yeah. You know, when you pick a name, what's unfortunate about it is you have to stick with it forever. <laughs> That's your name. Yeah. Right. And just the tendency to want to change it and adapt like you can do the graphics, right? But you can't change the name, unfortunately. No, nope, you're stuck with that. And uh, it, was, it was kind of interesting that first year that we came, we went to Interbike, which was a sort of a bicycle industry trade show and it was where we launched our brand there was a couple of other brands that showed up that year with numbers in their names so maybe it might have been a trendy thing to do at the time i don't know and was there something about the number six or or not necessarily well what happened was is we'd uh we came up with a, another name we, we did a lot of research and and we we're trying to come up with something clever as designers you know you, you always want to come up with some kind of background story or something that makes the concept of what your name is have have meaning and um and so we were we were doing all this research trying to figure out names that had a concept and and one of the terms that we came up with for a cyclist was the motor and so you know besides having a, a, a name with a number in it that we could use for our logo or as just a kind of hint or a nod to that it's our product without having to put our logo all over everything we 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 realized that the, you know, the name, sometimes uh, the, a cyclist is the motor of their own vehicle. So we basically named ourselves after a motor. Before you started Twin Six, how did you get into graphic design and how did you become such a good designer? Well, I, you know, I, I think for, for, I can't speak for Ryan um, as far as how he got into it, but for myself, um, it was really the only art art and design were, were kind of the only things that I was really good at. And it sort of seemed like that was the direction I, I would go. You know, when I got out of high school, I, I went to college and I thought, well, I'd take some advertising design classes because I didn't, you know, I wasn't going to major in English or math or science. It just, that wasn't really my, my bit. And I didn't really understand what design was. I just thought it was technical drawing. My, my dad was a draftsman, and so I sort of thought, ah, oh, design just meant technical drawing. It was just a different way to do stuff. And as I kind of went through college, I realized what being a designer, or at least a graphic designer, was all about. And yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got into it. And then I guess how, how Ryan and I got good at it. I mean, you have to become aware of design. You have to be inspired by other people's design. And then it's just a school of hard knocks. It's just practicing and honing your craft and figuring out smoke and mirror tricks. Every designer has little tricks that they can do that make things look cool. And it's just a continuing of just, poli you know, polishing and practicing. Brent, as you heard, I provided an introduction about you and Twin Six as I opened this podcast. But in your own words, describe your company, its product and the product scope and what makes it so unique. When we started our company, basically what 
what we wanted to do is we wanted to create product that we were excited about wearing graphically. And uh, I think what makes our company unique or made us unique at the time was that we were we're using current graphic and fashion trends on cycling apparel where other cycling companies were just sort of doing a regurgitation of, you know, what the cool jersey was in the tour the year before or what the cool jersey was that one of the big box companies was making. Our, we didn't follow any of those rules. We kind of followed the rules of the, you know, of, of a, a more of a graphic trend um, than of a cycling trend. We didn't take any inspiration from from cycling to do cycling product. So, you know, we, we went to our first trade show with six jerseys and six T-shirts. We, are, you know, the T-shirt angle thing has been a very, pretty big part of our company. And we, as far as I know, I mean, actually, I, I do know of one other brand that did it before us, but uh, graphic, you know, cyclists like to wear T-shirts. Everybody likes to wear T-shirts. T-shirts are are a, a very much a lifestyle piece of apparel. And, and our, my, our company is a lifestyle company. I don't, I never really felt like Twin Six was an apparel company. I still don't. Now that we do bikes, I, I don't even know how to categorize it, but I always felt like we were a, a lifestyle company. So we did the t-shirts and the t-shirt angle for us was that our t-shirts, other, other bike brands that were doing t-shirts at the time were doing, were doing just their logo on the chest. So if you rode a Gary Fisher bike and you wanted to wear a Gary Fisher t-shirt, then you could buy a Gary Fisher t-shirt. But if you rode a Gary Fisher bike and you didn't want to wear a Gary Fisher t-shirt, there wasn't an option that said, Hey, I'm a cyclist or I dig cycling. I'm in the cycling lifestyle. So all of our t-shirts, they never said twin six on them. I don't think we've ever done a logo in the middle of our shirt ever, but we've, they were always cycling lifestyle. They were always cycling concepts that were based on a cycling lifestyle. So that, that kind of that way it was different about the t-shirts the, the jerseys, like I said, they were more fashion driven. And since then we've kind of just started creating things that, that would go along and support our brand. So, you know, it would be, we had cool jerseys. So then we would design matching socks and then, Matching socks turned into a full kit, which means a jersey, you know, bib shorts and socks. And then we do cycling bottles, you know, water bottles that fit into that. And along with the T-shirts, we'd start doing posters. And then we, you know, hey, I want a, I want a bag. I want a cool bag that looks different and is more fun, you know, to put my stuff in. So we started doing bags. And then we did pants and wool sweaters and um just all sorts of things that we could do. And sometimes people would approach us and we would do um, collaboration projects. And sometimes we would do feel good projects where we um, design things for raising fundraisers and stuff. And then the whole time we kind of knew that we would get, you know, I always sort of felt we would do bikes. We, you know, what we do some kind of hard goods product that would, that would be cool and different. And, um, and that's something that we would want to have on our bikes I didn't know if it would be components like handlebars and grips and saddles or if we'd go all the way into bikes. But what we ended up doing is we ended up going down the road of designing bikes that we were that we that we wanted to ride or that we thought would be cool to have at bike shops that that didn't feel dumbed down or didn't feel um, like they were designed by committee, but they were designed by like one person that had an idea or a vision for what they wanted in that bike. And so that those are the kind of bikes that we've been making. Yeah. How many employees do you have? Right now there's six of us at Twin Six. So we were sticking with the concept. We've, we've been up to like nine or ten or nine and a half. 
but uh, we've got a really good staff right now and it's um it's really pretty efficient the way we do things there we have a um, an operations manager that kind of handles the day-to-day and, and keeps keeps us on track and then there's myself my business partner ryan carlson he's a designer and then we have another designer jesse lalonde and then we have um, um, customer service um, person that handles a lot of the customer service stuff and shipping and receiving and then we've got a shipping and receiving you know person that handles just uh a whole a whole bunch whatever needs to be done they they take care of and how many retailers do you how many doors do you sell to oh wow i you know i don't i don't even know anymore um we sell all around the world our biggest retailer is uh is rei and and i don't know i think they have us they have you know very small a very small you know collection of our our product at i think all their stores and I can never remember how many stores they have. It's like, you know, one year it's 90, the next year it's 100, the next year it's 110. I, I, don't, I don't know how many stores they have anymore. Uh, we sell to uh, backcountry.com. And they're, they're really great, great for us. And they have a whole bunch of sub.coms that, they, that you, know, you don't necessarily know you're buying from backcountry, but it's still backcountry. And then we... We have, you know, a bunch of brick and mortar shops all around the country, uh, ranging from, um, you know, bigger, bigger shops like, um, well, locally Eric's Bike Shop that has several stores to even to, to more like boutique shops um, um, like city and county in San Francisco. That's one shop and they do they just do, you know, like one off custom bikes for people. And then we have. Um, shops we have some dealers in europe and a bunch of um, dealers in japan brent many entrepreneurs go into business with a set of assumptions and many of those assumptions prove to be different from what they expected thereby making them scramble to make changes in order to survive regarding twin six's uniqueness did your original assumption about that uniqueness prove motivating to consumers or did you have to shift or pivot to sort of uh, respond to their uh, feedback? I don't. I don't think we ever shift, shifted or changed our direction on what we were going to do. Uh, it was. I think our our challenge was more that um, you know a lot, a lot of bike shop owners are hobbyists. They're not necessarily businessmen, and and cycling apparel isn't really isn't really that big of a factor in what they think they can sell that, you know, they're selling bikes and service. So as far as like, you know, the cycling apparel goes, there's a lot of bike shops that think, well, you know, the red Jersey I had last year for the last 10 years was the Jersey that everybody wanted to buy. And so I'm just going to keep buying, you know, I like your Jersey. I can't tell you how many times we heard. I really like what your guys are doing, but I don't know if my customers are cool enough for it or, uh, you know, I, I, I like what you're doing, but I'm not going to sell that just because it was so out of the box of what they were used to seeing. They, they were used to selling Trek's Jersey or Cannondale's Jersey or that plain yellow Jersey or a Jersey that had captain crunch on the chest uh, of it. And so when we came out with stuff that didn't look like that, they didn't necessarily know how to handle what we were doing. 
And I would say that first trade show we went to, it was amazing. We left there thinking, we left there feeling like we were on top of the world. But after that, when it came time to trying to get orders so that we could forecast what we needed to get from our manufacturer, the orders just didn't come flying in. And it wasn't, if it wasn't for REI taking a chance on us, we might not be in business right now. It was, um, REI came in and they ordered a, a pretty good chunk of, of um, two, two, two different jerseys of the six jerseys that we designed. And, and that basically funded the whole thing. It took the risk out of it for us anyway. Right. And did our, how many stores did REI purchase for at the time? I, I, I couldn't tell you how many stores it was. No, I, I have no idea. Um, and that was, that was massively intimidating working, working with REI, not having any idea what we were doing. We didn't, you know, we, I can remember at inner at Interbike the trade show we went to like we we probably the last thing we designed before we went to the trade show was an order form and I can remember sitting down with one dealer there filling out the first order form and you know I designed the order form but I didn't even I didn't really know how to even fill it out we hadn't even practiced filling out an order form so the the REI thing was was pretty cool and and I I, I guess I'm forever grateful for those guys for taking a chance on us they they were walking around the trade show and and looking for something new and they they felt like their clientele was getting older and older and they needed to bring in a, like a younger clientele because, you know, pretty soon their clientele was going to stop riding bikes. They were going to get sold. So they, they needed to like kind of something a little trendier and they, and they found us and brought us in because they thought that we were that trendy or could be that trendy company for them. Yeah. It's so funny that you were talking about when you didn't know how to fill out the order form. When I, when I started my snowboard and ski outerwear company, we were at the snow sports show in Las Vegas. And, you know, I set up the booth. We did a lot of great graphic design. We had a lot of really uh, nice apparel and setup and everything. And uh, I didn't know what I was doing either. And, uh, and I remember filling out those forms the same way. And then I'd look at it six hours later and I don't even know what I wrote down because I was so excited to write something down. I couldn't fill it in right. I missed some key information. So that's so funny. Yeah, yeah. I felt the same way. I felt the same way about it. And uh, everybody thought I knew I was what I was doing, but I certainly did not. And I had to fake it. Fake it till you make it. That's the that's the whole key of pretty much everything, I guess. Tell me how. So Brent, here we are in the tell me how segment of the podcast, where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Brent, let's talk about getting money for your startup. Did you raise capital for Twin Six in the early days? So no, we didn't We didn't raise capital. What we did was uh, I met with my business partner, Ryan, and I, I pitched the idea to him. He, he's a super great designer, and I, you know, he was in the cycling, and he had a really great sense of personal style. He, I mean, he still does, and, um, and um, he's just a workhorse. And I sat down and I, and I pitched this idea to him about about Twin Six, like let's do this, and here's the steps that I think, and I and I believe that we're going to need, you know, we're going to need five thousand dollars each to get to this trade show, and I don't care how you come up with the five grand, but I've got mine saved, and if you're in, you're in, and and uh, and basically at that point we sort of both had, it was kind of before the housing bubble burst, and everybody had home equity lines of credit, and so. We thought, you know, it's because this five grand is going to be the seed money, and if it fails, we're out five grand. It was an interesting, you know, adventure, and we got some sample product. And if it succeeds, succeeds, we're going to need to 
dip into our home equity lines to fund that first product offering. Um, then that's kind of how we, that's how we sort of funded it. And then basically after that, we just worked for free for a long time. And, uh, and, and, and that, um, you know, we'd, we'd sell 200 t-shirts and we'd buy 400 t-shirts and we'd sell, you know, 400 t-shirts and we'd buy 800 t-shirts. It was that kind of thing where the product just funded the product. When did you quit your day job? I quit my day job um, about six months after the trade show. Um, we were things were starting to get busy. Um, we were both working working you know nights and weekends on on Twin Six, and I uh, I um I was I was contemplating you know moving on. It was kind of scary to go from having a great job. I was working as a um, as a product designer at Target. I got a pretty cool job there in the, um, on the product development crew right before I came up with the idea for twin six or at the same time. And I was working with the men's apparel and anyway, the, the, the men's apparel team. And, and I, I had a pretty good paying job anyway. So, so that's kind of the deal. And, and so to go from that to basically deciding to make no money for however long it took was, you know, scary. And, um, and my father-in-law said to me, he said, uh, part-time effort equals part-time results. And that was kind of the, that as soon as he said that, I, I knew that, you know, if I want to really want to make this thing work, if, if failure isn't an option with twin six, I, I gotta, I gotta jump ship and I, I gotta, gotta take a chance on this thing. Yeah. Good for you. Did you ever, did you ever raise investment capital from investors any, at any point? Never. Good for you. No, we, we did it all on the home equity deal for a couple of years. And then after that, we start, we got a business line of credit. And since then we've been doing business lines of credit, um, which are not fun to apply for every year. But, um, so I was a little bit scary. If you have big growth, you know, is the bank going to cover you? How are you going to do it? And then, you know, in our, our business, we have to play, we have to offer terms to a lot of our dealers. And so we play banker to them. So it's like constantly floating alone from, you know, February to the middle of June every year just diving super deep into debt and then, uh, and then paying your way out of it. Did you ever consider investors? We, we talked about it. Like, wouldn't it be neat to have a secret investor or somebody that wanted to help us out? But it was always kind of like, I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to approach that. And I really don't want to give any control away. We've never needed to do it. And so we've never, we've never done it. And I, I don't even have any idea how to do it. To what extent was it challenging in your first approaches to the banks? I guess the, the challenging part was is just not knowing what they would want. You know, we, we didn't have a business plan. I, I, we, we've never written a business plan. I have no idea even how to do it. I'm not even sure. Uh, when people talk about writing business plans, it always seems like just, you know, like made up numbers. We have a good accountant that that helps us put together all the you know the information that the bank needs to decide whether they're going to give us money or not. I guess we you know the the the, the hard part is is just uh, hoping that you're going to get the funds you need, and, and fortunately for us, it's always been just enough. Right, and and I think for our listeners, it's really important to emphasize that in in your type of a business, it's seasonal. For months, you're really paying out a lot of cash for production and other things. And, and then um, once you distribute the product and get it into stores, 
then later you get paid back and you're always hoping that it it comes back more than what you spent. One of the things for us is that we weren't paying for design. That that was kind of our sweat equity into the whole into the whole deal. Um, because you can't get you can't sell design after the fact. And we knew that at what we were paying for our product and what what we were selling it for, that even if we had to go into super clearance, we would get the money back that we needed to pay off our loans. And we weren't, you, you can't sell, like if you're starting a new business and you need somebody to design a logo for you and you pay whatever for that logo, or you need somebody to design product, I guess, you know, if they're designing product, then you can sell the product, but you can't sell a logo afterward. You can't clearance off your logo and get that money back. It never felt that risky to us because of, we, you know, we knew how much we had orders for, we knew how much we were ordering, we knew kind of when the money was coming back. And then we sell direct, you know, and so our website is a, is a really important tool to our business. Yes. And in your industry, I imagine there's a lot of independent shops that you sell to. And I'm curious to know, to what extent do you not get paid by some of those retailers? That was the case for me in the snowboard industry. Well, it's, you know, I mean, is it's like, like I was saying earlier, you know, as a bike shop and in, in, in bike you know dealing with bike shops who are primarily run by not businessmen who are in deep to pay off their bikes and the stuff that they think makes them money which i mean th that is the stuff that makes the money the last person they're going to pay is the guy they bought the jerseys from so um you know it net 30 turns into net 60 turns into net 90 and unfortunately, in some cases, turns into the shop went out of business and they never sent you your product back or told you they were going out of business and you're out the money. That's right. That happened to me quite a bit. And so for the newbie listeners that are listening, when when uh, Brent is talking about net 30, 60 and 90, those are agreements that you have in place with the retailer that they'll pay you within 30 days. And so often that's true, Brent, where they don't pay within the 30 days and that goes on to 60 days and 90, and pretty soon uh, you're not sure what to do. But um, unfortunately, that happens from time to time. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, and, and we've probably lost, uh, you know, around $100,000 worth of product in the last 10 years. Right. Yeah, which is a, which is a major bummer. I, as a business owner, I would never do that to somebody else. I would, uh, you know, at least tell them that I'm going out of business and give them the opportunity to pay for me shipping their stuff back. You know, I mean, that would be, that would be the least I would do. We've been fortunate that we've had, you know, we've been, we've been able to always weather those storms. It's just, it's just a bummer. It's a major bummer when you lose money like that. It sure is. Let's shift gears to talking about finding a manufacturer. How on earth did you find a manufacturer being such a, a neophyte going into the business? Yeah. And I think that the internet was just getting good enough at the time that we started where some manufacturers, some private label manufacturers were starting to put up web pages. And so, you know, we, I was doing searches for private label manufacturers that could do sublimating. And, um, and we found like three of them. And, and, um, you know, it's probably just, you know, thinking that we could do it and then just doing it, you know, and, and finding those manufacturers was always tough. We started off with a manufacturer that did product for Nike and they did product for other cycling brands and, and, uh, we would get them all of our designs and everything on time. And then they would manufacture everybody's stuff first and they would do ours last. 
and we would barely make our deadlines. And then we ended up moving to another company that was out of Poland. They, they, they did really, they did a pretty great job and it was nice working with those guys. And then the, and then the dollar just went, just do, took a nosedive and it was like suddenly our jerseys were five, six dollars more than they were the year before. We ended up finding, a, a, you know, at that point it was like, well, let's just go American made. And, um, and we've been doing, uh, we've been working with a private label manufacturer, um, man, for probably the last eight, eight, nine years. Based in the U S yeah. Out of Northern California. And, uh, right? yeah. And so we, we, I mean, we pay more for our product than we would if we went overseas with it, but having done the overseas things with, uh, the apparel, it's just, it just feels, uh, it's just easier. It just takes a lot of the headache out of it. Um, and a lot of the, the confusion, like the, when we were working with the company in Poland, you, you'd ask a question and then you wouldn't get the answer till the next day, or you just, you never really knew what you were going to get. And if you got something that was wrong, I mean, how are you going to fix that or repairs or whatever? It's just, it, working with a, with a U.S. made manufacturer for us has been, has been the way to go. That's fantastic. What other sorts of advice do you have for our listeners about finding a manufacturer? You know, I, I think that you should, one thing you should do is follow your gut. If, if it seems like that manufacturer can't do it, they probably can't. Um, you know, we've gone down the road before with places where we've been promised things and it turns out that we don't get them. And, and, um, so, you know, I guess find somebody that you, that you, uh, you're confident in that you, that you trust, um, have them make samples for you. See, you know, see how much it costs to get things started, you know, ask for timelines, make sure that they stick to their timelines. If they don't, that might be a sign that it's time to look for a different manufacturer. Just get on the internet, I guess, and just start hunting, hunting and hunting. You can usually find what you're looking for. How recently did you start producing hard goods, bicycles themselves? Yeah. So the bikes, we've been doing bikes for, for uh, two seasons, two full seasons. We hired an engineer to help us with it. Um, thinking that, that that person could help us, you know, source the product, figure out a lot of the stuff that we didn't know how to do. The same stuff we didn't know how to do with cycling apparel when we started. But we figured that person could help us. And, and that didn't work out the way we'd hoped. We tried to go down the route with the bikes about having them made in the States. And that, that just hit a lot of dead ends. That we, we, we guess we kind of wasted a year trying to get it done in the States maybe four years ago. And then, um, and working with that engineer and then, and then we decided, you know what, we kind of, we found a manufacturer in, in Taiwan that could do what we wanted. And we started just taking over that process ourselves. So parted ways with the engineer and we, we knew what we wanted and we worked with, um, another engineer to help us do some drawings, but basically all of uh, his drawings were based on, on drawings that we did. Um, and then we just started doing it all ourselves. So I, we got, we, we ordered our first, you know, we did prototypes and we had to dive super deep. That was, that was a kind of a challenge um, because, you know, we were, we were funding a, starting a bike company with our other company, you know, with selling jerseys and t-shirts. And, and that was um, starting a bike company, a hard goods side of, of our company wasn't, wasn't cheap and it wasn't easy and it's, it's still not easy. <laughs> it's, it's uh but, but the soft goods funds, the hard goods basically. Yeah. And we made a lot of mistakes with the bikes. We wasted a lot of time and we made a lot of mistakes 
and we're finally, I think we finally got, got, we're back on top of it. We're, we've paid off all of the, we've, we finally got to the point, you know, we started it maybe four years ago and we finally got to the point where we really paid off all of that, you know, production. And, and so now that business is starting to go, go well for us. And I, and I don't know as far as the hard lines, the bikes side of it, it's something that we always wanted to do. And I knew we would do, um, like I said earlier, and I, I didn't know how we would do it, but the, the bike thing always was something that we would do. And it just, I, I think that when we started the bike company, because we were already an established or the bike side of our company, because we were an already an established brand, I figured that we would, it would take off a little bit uh, quicker than it did. And, and I think that maybe was probably, I was probably naive to think that, I mean, it took us two to three years of doing the soft good side of things to get get to, to get to a point where we were actually uh, making the kind of living that we were making as graphic designers. Are you manufacturing the bicycles in Taiwan? We have bikes that are being manufactured in Taiwan and we have bikes that are being manufactured in China. Let's talk about selling the product to retailers. You talked a little bit about your first forays into doing that at the trade show. But tell us more after the show, maybe that that season after the show and maybe the following season when you were approaching retailers. How did you do that? Did you do it yourself? Did you pick up the phone and call? Did you send out brochures? Did you just work on the local Twin Cities stores at first? Did you hire independent sales reps? How did you do that? It, you know, we, we, we started by going to the trade show and, and collecting business cards and it, we, we did all, we did like silly things, you know, at the trade show we were, we were, you know, at the time it was like an iPod shuffle was cool or something. So we, we had a jar where we collected business cards and then you, you could win an iPod shuffle, which was, you know, then I, I was working at target so I could get 10% off an iPod shuffle. And so we, you know, that was the investment in that we would go to other other bike manufacturers sites and look at their dealer lists and grab the names off of those, you know, and try to get, call those places and get the names of their buyers. We would send out, um, just emails and emails. We'd go and look at lists of all sorts of stuff. One of the, our, our growth kind of happened maybe by design or maybe because we didn't really know what we were doing. It happened sort of organically. We, we, people would call us. We'd get a lot of, a lot of cold, cold calls. What we did at the, you know, and then another thing that sort of happened for us at the time, you know, we had the funding from, from our home equity lines of credit, which I think would be hard to get now. Blogging at the time was also kind of a big thing. It was sort of the new thing. And so we, we befriended a ton of bloggers that had a lot of pull and we would get our product out to them so that then they, you know, people would see that and they would go to their dealer and ask for it. Um, so I guess, you know, it was a ton of, it was a ton of things, cold calls, the trade show, bloggers, sending out product, sending product to magazines, contacting magazines. We, you know, the REI thing was a big deal for us. And then after that, you know, we would get some sales on our website and then, uh, and then, um, outside magazine took one of our jerseys and they declare, you know, they, that was the Jersey of the year. And, um, that Jersey got in their buyer's guide as the best looking cycling Jersey of the year, which was, was probably our worst selling Jersey to that point, And then suddenly was sold out in a couple of weeks. Is that right? Yeah. So there were things, there was all sorts of things that we did that just kind of organically helped us 
build our business and, and grow. Uh, but, you know, I mean, there were, there were cold calls and there was a lot of emails, mass emails. Not, I mean, it wasn't even really a mass email. It was just this list that we had compiled and we would just send emails to places and call people and stuff. It, it, but, it, you know, I would, I would say most of the shops that we picked up called us. Um, the, the effort we put into building it ourselves by reaching out to, to bike shops didn't really result in that much, but, but all the other efforts of sort of growing your brand and your brand awareness and your brand identity, which is what we, you know, had, had backgrounds in as far as creating brands and brand images that helped us grow organically, I would say. Yeah. Do you sell your products through distributors, sort of that middle wholesale at all? We were approached by a, pretty major distributor in the early, early days. And they just, they want such a huge cut of your, of of your, of the profit. It just didn't make sense to us. Uh, Eventually. So, I mean, we turned them down several years for several years and eventually we, we kind of gave in to it um, and and did it. And it it wasn't really that successful for us to do that. Um, You give it, you give away such a cut, such a, such a cut of your profit margin that, and then, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily know how that affects your other business with that dealer purchased for me versus them. And I could have got, you know, full profit out of, out of the product. Um, so we, we, we have, and we, we currently aren't selling to any distributors at all. We, we handle all of our own fulfillment. Let's talk about pricing. Originally, when you went to that trade show, how did you know you had the right price for the product to cover the profitability that you needed as well as hitting the retailer price points that they needed? Well, we didn't know. <laughs> we, we, I knew what we were paying for our product and we knew what, what a competitive price would be. And so I guess when we were researching a manufacturer, I mean, that was a major part of it. Can we buy something that we can then turn around and sell? Whole, at a wholesale price. When we when we started the company, we figured we'd we would sell more wholesale. And at that time, nobody in the cycling industry was selling direct. We were one of the first people that that broke that that kind of rule and and started selling direct uh, as a manufacturer to to the consumer, which was it was very much frowned upon. And in fact, it's it's I would say that that's going to be the next big change in the cycling industry is that you know, the, the big box brands and they're working on ways to do it now to sell direct and, and bypass and bypass the brick and mortar store that, you know, as far as the pricing went, it was, you know, what is a competitive price? What are we paying for it? What are we going to have to wholesale it at to keystone it, which is to give the, the brick and mortar shop, the profit margin that they need to make. And, and fortunately, we were able to find a manufacturer that could produce it at the price that we figured we needed to get our cut. You know, the, the, as the business changes for us, the percentage that we make off wholesale sales is a lot less than it used to be. But fortunately, we can sell direct through Twin6.com, which is our which which is our biggest dealer. Right. Really. It's our that's our biggest uh, dealer, and and uh, it is it's shifted. You know, I mean, in the early. In the early years, we wouldn't sell. We and that was kind of the idea of selling T-shirts. We would sell T-shirts direct during the season, but we wouldn't sell jerseys direct. We'd only sell jerseys after the season was over, and you know, like the end of August, we would start selling whatever we had left at, at that point. And then we just realized, you know, if we're going to play a banker to all these 
bike shops and we're going to try to build our brand. We need to sell direct. And at that point we started selling direct. And, and for us, I think probably cause we were, you know, with bike shops weren't really that concerned about us. They, they didn't, they, we didn't get that many complaints. So we didn't lose that many dealers. Let's talk about creating awareness and demand for the product. I always tell people that I mentor in the startup community that it's, it's easy to get into the stores but it's hard getting off the shelf within the stores. It's hard to sort of support the store with marketing because a lot of times consumers go into the store with a pre uh, idea about what they're going to buy and they see something new and they sort of bypass that something new. How did you guys sell product? How did you create demand and awareness for the product with, with such small marketing budgets? Well, no marketing budget, really. I, I, we always sort of thought like, you know what, we're, we're going to get into magazines because our product's going to be different and cool. And so the magazine's going to put us in there without us having to do anything. Our product's going to sell at the, at the bike shop because it's different, it's new and it's cool and it's just going to sell itself. And, and, and I guess, thankfully for us, it worked out that way, you know, for the first four or five, six years, we had a really great kind of group of bloggers that really pushed, pushed our agenda um, and helped us. They helped us a lot. And, um, and those guys are still cool. You know I mean? But that, that, that's a different, that's a different time. And, and, you know, Facebook wasn't really a thing when we started, but it was a lot of just, um, uh, gorilla kind of stuff. We didn't, add, we didn't give any of the bike shops like stickers to give away. We didn't have any, you know, point of purchase display. We didn't have anything. We just had our product really. And then, and, and it worked out that, that it was cool enough that it, it sold itself. Let's get personal. So Brent, let's get personal on a few topics. It seems that 99 out of 100 people just talk about starting a business but never start one. It's all show and no go. And starting a business is special and really highly unusual. What motivates a person like you to stop just talking about launching a business and actually go out and start a business like Twin Six. Do you think it was your destiny to start a business like Twin Six? I don't know if it was my destiny. I, I, I mean, maybe it was. I, I, uh, I, I talked about doing. Well, I, when I went to school as a designer, I always thought, well, you know, I mean, I, nobody ever retires from design. So, like, what are you going to do? You're going to you're going to, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to become a designer and then I'm going to eventually own a design firm. And then I started working at design firms and I was like, man, I really hate designing for other people. How can I become, how can I, how can I figure out a way to, that I become my client? And, and so the idea of twin six and the idea of becoming my own client designing, you know, I'm, I'm the product, I'm the, I'm the target audience for, for, for our company. We're, we're making stuff for ourselves. And so that idea of becoming your own client was sort of the, the way to get, get it going. You know, I, I talked, I, when I went to college, part of our, our, you know, our, my degree was, is the, the final year you create a fake company. And my fake company was a bike company. Uh, I put myself through college working at a bike shop. So I guess my des destiny to end up in the bike industry, maybe, maybe that was my destiny, but the, this, to be, you know, and, and the, the idea of, starting my own company was kind of a thought I always thought I would do as a designer in advertising or design, but not as in the cycling industry. So it was kind of, it kind of worked out that, that I was able to sort of meld both interests into one, 
into one deal. And I guess the, 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 the starting of twin six was basically just happened because I was dumb enough to think I could do it. Um, I don't know if I would knowing what I know now, I don't know if I would think I could do it again. Right. Um, yeah. You know, when I, when I pitched this idea to my business partner, I said, you know, what we'll do is we'll, we'll design a whole bunch of stuff. We'll go to a trade show. We'll sell it. Then we'll just take a few months off, not do anything, watch Oprah or whatever. And we, and, and, and when, uh, and when the product shows up, we'll be busy for a few weeks and we'll ship it out and then we'll ride our bikes in the spring and we'll have a good time. And then we'll spend a couple months designing stuff and then we'll go to the trade show and we'll sell it and we'll ship it out. And it, it, it'll be like this full-time part-time job where we're our own clients. Right. And, uh, I mean, I, how silly was that to think that was the way that was going to go? I, I didn't know. I, I was, I, I always tell people that want to start a new company, you know, math doesn't lie. And, um, and, and, and I didn't do the math to start this company. I, I didn't sit down and think, what are my, what's my operating expenses going to be? What is, what kind of lifestyle do I want to live and how many, how much do I have to sell every day to make that? Had I done that, I don't know if I would have ever done it. Exactly. Um, so I guess, uh, being opti optimistic enough to think that I could do it without really knowing if I could or not. Um, and possibly destiny, if you believe in destiny. What have been your biggest joys or what have you been most proud of along your journey with Twin Six? The biggest joy is just seeing um, people, seeing our product, you know, I, I, going to going out for a bike ride and uh, and riding past somebody who's wearing, wearing Twin Six. That's cool. I remember one time we went to, uh, in our early years, I went, we went and did this race, this huge race in Wisconsin. And, um, uh, and you know, I'm all decked out in twin six. Nobody knows that I'm the twin six guy, but as I'm riding, I'm riding with other guys in twin six. And as we're going through, this is a race where there's huge crowds. And as we're riding through the crowds, people are, are chanting for the brand, not by, you know, like they don't know who we are. They're like, go twin six. That was, that was pretty amazing to have, have enough brand awareness. I mean, two, three years in where people are actually, they're, they're cheering you on by the brand of Jersey that you're wearing. I, I don't remember that ever happening before. It never happened to me before. Certainly because I'm not that, not that great a cyclist, but to have that, to have that happening. And, and to those people don't know that I'm the twin six guy. They're just yelling that, you know, they're, they're yelling at the guy, 10 riders in front of me that was wearing a twin six Jersey there. They see the six, they know that, you know, they're, they, they feel the lifestyle of the, what we, you know, are the lifestyle of our brand and they're, and they're cheering that, you know, those are, that was, that was a pretty amazing feeling. Did your expectation of the type of customer that you'd sell to prove the same as you expected? You know, I, the thing is about our brand is that like good design speaks to everybody. Most everybody. Some people have really bad taste, but, but lots of people, they can tell the difference between something that's designed well and something that just has no, that, that isn't designed well. It's graphically, right? And so we would have like mountain bikers say, oh, you know, I love your brand, but it's a road bike brand, but I'm, I'm going to buy it anyway. And then we'd have road cyclists say, I love your brand, but it's a mountain bike brand, but I'm, I'm going to buy it anyway. And we'd have triathletes say, you know, I, I can't, you know, this isn't triathlon gear, but I'm going to buy it to wear when I'm on my bike. 
And so all these different categories and, and you know, when you design a collection, if you're a good designer, when you design a collection, you don't, and even though, you know, we, we are our own customer, we, we wouldn't design our collection to just like fit. Okay. This one I think is going to go to this cool guy and this one's going to go to a, you know, a middle-aged man. And this one's going to be more for a woman. This one's going to be wherever, you know, we, we kind of, we kind of design that collection out to cover a whole bunch of different, you know, aesthetics, but they're all aesthetics that we appreciate. It was cool that we weren't pigeonholed into one um, into one category of cyclist. You know, like anybody who was into the cycling lifestyle was was usually excited about something that we did. Since becoming an entrepreneur, what has been your biggest frustration? I read something one time about a guy who uh, talked about having you know like having your dream job, and I, I I probably have my dream job. I and what this guy said was is you know even though you have your dream job, you know people are always asking how do I how do I get my dream job how I guess in your case, how do I start my dream company or whatever? And the thing is, is that, you know, 40% of your dream job is not that awesome. It, it kind of sucks. I don't really, I don't really like, you know, I, I want to make things and I want to, uh, you know, design stuff or just be part of producing stuff or talking about stuff that I'm excited about. But like, you know, getting a bank loan is not that cool. Having to deal with employees, it's not that fun. Putting together processes and how to ship things, you know, it's not really, it's not, you know, there's there's forty percent of your job that isn't that that cool. The rest of it's pretty awesome. Brent, many entrepreneurs, even seasoned entrepreneurs, experience self doubt. They have self doubt as they go along their entrepreneurial journey. How much self doubt have you had, if any, and how have you dealt with it? I've I've had doubt um, several times, and and um. I guess the the way I've dealt with it is is that um, that I just I I can't I can't fail at this I have to make it work um, which is is probably easy to say because it's it's been working uh, you know you can't just will something to happen I guess but it's it's just that kind of pushing through the doubt that helps and and learning from your mistakes especially when you're making apparel you know some things sometimes things don't show up the way you the way you design them or somebody made some, make some mistake. I guess that would happen with anything other than apparel too. But, but like, you know, figuring out how to take a bad situation and make it good, you know, and, and trying to look at it. There's always, there's always a way to wiggle out, out of that doubt and, and move forward. And, and I guess, you know, if it's something you really want, you just figure it out. What have you learned most about yourself? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what I've learned most about myself. Uh, you know, I, I guess that I learned most about myself is that I, I can, I can run a business to a point, you know, we've done, we've, we've been doing twin six for 12 years. We've done a lot of things that most people can't do and, and won't do. Uh, I have a little bit more courage than, than I, than I think I have. Brent, you've been an amazing guest offering some great insights and advice to our aspiring entrepreneur listeners today. Congratulations on your success for your entrepreneurial courage. And thanks for sharing your experiences with us today. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business.